Hello, everybody. Welcome to another fine episode of the Heavy Metal 101 podcast, where we got your pop metal, we got your traditional metal, and we have more extreme metal. Buddy, pal, we've reached a critical juncture, a three-pronged pitchfork in the road, if you will. We are now at the point where we can, by closely examining the state of the new wave of British heavy metal in 1981, identify the beginning of the process of heavy metal fracturing into the three primary subgenres of the 1980s. You're a pretty smart guy. Mike, could you remind us of what those three subgenres that we talked about in some detail, many episodes ago, what they were. Are those the three things that you just mentioned? That's good. That's good. You're paying attention. <laughs> You're paying attention. We're, oh, my God. We're two minutes in, and I haven't lost interest yet. I, Let's go. I honestly, I Let's <laughs> go. <laughs> All right. Wait. Now, you noticed I just mentioned them. I'm covering up the screen. What did I say? You said pop, uh, mm -hmm. like sort of traditional or normal metal, and then... Uh, the extreme. Yeah, all right, good, good. So when we talked about this back in season one, we talked about pop metal, which is sometimes also Bad. known as light metal, which John apparently doesn't like. We have traditional metal, sometimes referred to as classic metal, sometimes referred to as just heavy metal. It's like porridge that is just perfectly temperate and delicious for all to eat. And then we have what is now thought of as a broad swath of subgenres called extreme metal. Back in the time that we're at, the early 80s, you probably would have used the term speed metal. That term is going to, by 1984, evolve into the term thrash metal. I'm going to refer to it as speed slash thrash metal, which is awkward, but kind of the best I can do. So those are the three subgenres. Today, we're going to work to establish some of the basics of each of these subgenres, generally, and also through three specific paradigmatic albums that were released in 1981. I don't want to scare you off immediately, so we're going to start on some safer ground. We're going to begin by discussing the warmest and fuzziest of these three subgenres, pop metal, which you clearly hate. But it's so catchy. You don't like catchy music? It's not that I don't like catchy music, I just don't care for this. Well, you know, for the record, this is where much of the material from one of your most favorite Broadway jukebox musicals, Rock of Ages, came from. Would you like to take this opportunity to share with our audience your thoughts regarding Rock of Ages? If you would like a 20-minute deep dive into how much I hate Rock of Ages, you can check out my Musical Minutes with John and John podcast episode specifically on Rock of Ages, where I talk about how shitty I think Rock of Ages is. I enjoyed listening to that thoroughly. Yeah, it because it's, it's just bashing this <laughs> shitty show, which yeah. is not only shitty for being a jukebox musical, which generally are bad, but is also taking music that is just it was fine when it was originally performed and then to giving it to people who have no business performing it which makes okay music suddenly absolute garbage mm -hmm. rock of ages is terrible and yeah. then no one should be involved in it i think that rock of ages is a flaming pile of shit and should actually be illegal yeah I'd, I'd support that yeah so john and i are both not rock of ages fans although i think i have a bit more affinity for the source material than you do but i think we can both agree that having a musical theater singers singing it terrible is idea a terrible idea terrible yes. idea but all that having been said there really was a ton of wonderful music that would emerge from the 80s pop metal scene and despite me being the utterly hardcore badass that you currently see before you I actually was pretty firmly steeped in the world of pop metal throughout much of my adolescence. It was kind of musically where I lived, at least in my early teens. Yeah, you were the target audience. I was the target audience. Yeah, I was 13, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, when I When you're agree. 13, you should like stupid music. Now that you're an adult, what's wrong with you? I'm broken. I'm broken inside. <laughs> I think we already knew that. That's fair. My own original Gateway pop metal albums included Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. Do you know that album? Uh, a little bit. It's going to come up later this season. Probably the most beloved album of my own pre-teens. And also included a perhaps overly polished pop metal mega-hit 1987 album by a band we'll be talking about momentarily, Def Leppard. John, any idea which Def Leppard album I might be talking about? No. You really don't know? No. Big hit? No. 20 million albums? No idea. Hysteria. Hysteria. Oh my god. 
So, despite the fact that Hysteria sold 20 million copies worldwide, my delightfully doofy co-host is apparently not familiar with this album. I do know you've heard the song Pour Some Sugar On Me. We discussed that. Yes. Okay, you know that. That's one of many of the hits from Hysteria, which birthed no less than seven, seven singles. Those were Animal, Women, Pour Some Sugar On Me, Hysteria, Armageddon It, Love Bites, and Rocket. Any of those other tunes ring about? Literally, no. Wow. I mean, maybe if I heard them, but as titles, no. You'd probably recognize at least Hysteria and maybe Love Bites. I don't know. I could be wrong. You're <laughs> You'd be, you might be surprised. It's not something I've put money on. <laughs> <laughs> it's the smartest thing you've said so far today. <laughs> it probably is, yes. Probably not going to get any smarter than that either, so... <laughs> Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves by talking about the mid-80s peak of pop metal mania. Back in 1981, we're just looking at the dawning of an idea, which is that some amount of heavy metal trappings might still be maintained while the music is otherwise streamlined and polished to pop perfection. We've already met some of the principal father figures of the pop metal subgenre, Kiss, Aerosmith, and Van Halen. Other bands who helped to establish some of the principles that pop metal bands would take and run with include the Irish hard rockers Thin Lizzy. You know them? I've heard of them. Boys are back in town. Oh, sure. Yeah. Jailbreak. Good good band. UFO. I assume you don't know UFO. Nope. Uh, Doctor Doctors. Honestly, one of my favorite songs of all time. Very good hard rock band from the 70s. Is that... How does that go? Uh, it goes, Doctor, Doctor, give me the new... No, it doesn't. I'm getting stuck that that song. Doctor, doctor, please. You, you probably don't know it. No, um, no. I like that I was you said the single one that you said was the one that immediately popped into my head. I knew it. Because right? who is that? I don't know. <laughs> it's like Bob Seeger or something. I don't fucking know who wrote that. Actually, don't you disparage the good <laughs> I, name of Bob Seeger in this house? I like Bob Seeger. I love uh, Turn the Page. It's a great song. That's a wonderful song. Poorly covered by Metallica, I might add. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, our our mutual favorite Australians, the great ACDC. Love them. Yeah, so, you know, these are all really solid bands that are sort of underpinning this subgenre. To be totally honest, I don't always feel like stewing in the musical dark recesses of hell. Sometimes, John, I want nothing but a good time. Do do you know who wrote that song? No. Don't need nothing but a good time. Yeah, I I know what song you're talking about. You asked me if I know who wrote it. The answer is no. It's poison. Poison. Okay. But don't worry. Well, glam metal will be first and foremost on our minds in just a few episodes hence. No, I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be a great episode. Deep. Deep dive. By 1981, a larger genre of heavy metal had been pretty definitively resuscitated by the Nawabum, and the vast diversity of bands from this time afford us the option to start considering some of the releases from this year through a pop metal lens. Let's briefly run down just a few of the most important pop metal releases of 1981. So ACDC released their follow-up to the immortal Back in Black, which was the rather less immortal for those about to rock, We Salute You. John, do you know that album at all? Vaguely. You've heard, you've probably heard that song. Yeah. That is a fabulous song, but it, it really, to my mind, the album marks the end of the golden age of ACDC. I, I think that from the point of this album on, there are still a ton of great individual songs, but a lot of perfunctory sort of blah. And much of For Those About to Rock, We Salute You is just kind of, it's just not that exciting. Generally, I find the album a bit snoozy when compared with all of the greatness that came before, particularly the Bon Scott era, but also the wonderful Back in Black. Next up, we get some of the first serious salvos of the forthcoming glam metal explosion in 1981. For instance, the incredible debut, Bangkok Shocks, Saigon Shakes, Hanoi Rocks, from the fantastic Finnish glam import Hanoi Rocks. John, I'm assuming you've never even remotely heard of this band? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Their debut album is really incredible. I bet you you would actually kind of like it. It sounds more like like new wave music, like really catchy, memorable new wave music than, than pop metal. But it's great songwriting, but with a very glam image. So I have an image in front of us. It's just a poster image of the band. But check these fine-looking fins out. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got Walmart brand David Bowie up in the front. We've got a generic brand Axel 
I think you're thinking or of Slash. slash. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Slash. Let's, uh, yes, I am thinking of Slash. Uh-huh. Wow, just the hat choices are fascinating. Well, they and were fins. I think those hats were very the big. The other three people just looked depressed. Yeah, well, they were, you know, they were very emotional people, the finish, you know, weather and all that stuff. So what you're seeing before you is totally the visual template for glam metal. I mean, you mentioned Slash. you got to yep. keep in mind, 1981, this was way before Guns N' Roses. Yep. So Michael Monroe, the blonde up front, you referred to him as, as a, a bargain bin David Bowie. Yep. I would call him a bargain bin David Lee Roth. Fine. But but he's pretty, right? Like look, look, look at those those cheekbones are just Is that what you like? Do you want someone that like if you went to give them a hug, their face would cut you? I like that image. It's a strong image. He's got well. Suffice it to say, he's got really strong cheekbones. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, like whether aggressive you... cheekbones. Yeah. 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 But would you agree that glam would be a pretty good adjective to use? Sure. That, yeah. I mean, they're definitely and as their music went further. And sort of evolved, and they became more involved in the American scene. It becomes more definitively glam metal. Unfortunately, their career was cut short when their drummer was killed in a drunk driving incident with Vince Neil of Motley Crue. More on that some other time. In further glam news, 1981, we get the European release of Dawkins' Breaking the Chains. Dawkins, though incrementally less glam than some of their contemporaries, they would play a very important part in the first wave of Los Angeles glam metal. However, the debut album is really more of a Don Dawkins solo release. It just happened to feature two members of the band's classic lineup, George Lynch and Mick Brown, as hired guns at that time. Perhaps most important of all, in 1981, Motley Crue self-released just 900 copies of their debut album, Too Fast for Love, on November 10th. A good faith argument could most definitely be made for Too Fast for Love as the first true glam metal album. I suppose we'll certainly need to come back and discuss this one on a future episode, but spoiler alert, John, you might want to cover your ears if you don't want spoilers for future episodes. I don't care. You don't care at all. I fucking hate Too Fast for Love. It is a terrible, terrible album. It's got a couple of great songs on it. A couple of great songs. Are you, what, uh, what are your thoughts on Motley Crue? I'm assuming you're familiar with their existence. I, I am aware of the band name Motley Crue. I literally could not name a single song or album by them. Girls, girls, girls. No? No. He's the one that called Dr. Feel Good. No. He's the All right. Good talk. I have a really complicated relationship with Motley Crue. I mean, I certainly listened to them quite a lot as a young fellow, but they, I always thought they were a pretty shitty band. With, again, some select excellent songs. But Too Fast for Love is really a very bad album. There's a lot of really, really just crap on that. Two more, just two more 1981 pop metal albums worth a quick mention. This was the year Baltimore's favorite sons, Kix, that's K-I-X, released their eponymous debut. Great underappreciated album by a great underappreciated band. Not a lot of people know or listen to Kicks, and they're just very consistently excellent. Very much an American ACDC kind of thing. Great songwriting. Oh, just very good band. Lastly, The Mighty Van Halen released what was probably their darkest album, Fair Warning. Like all Roth-era Van Halen, it, it is truly magnificent. Also, though the album overall is quite dark, the single, Unchained, is most certainly one of the great pop metal rock radio staples. Great tune. I think we're ready to get some of this pop metal goodness in our ears. There is one crucial pop metal release I have not yet mentioned from 1981, which I believe is the finest pop metal album of the year, and frankly, one of the all-time great pop metal albums. That album is Def Leppard's masterpiece, High and Dry. It was on this album that they found the perfect sweet spot between the loose, energetic Nawabum sound of On Through the Night and the polished pop of later albums like Pyromania and Hysteria. It is also very, very fun to listen to, and every song is great. You agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. It was not easy for me to decide on just one tune for our assigned listening, but I did finally settle on the title track, High and Dry, parentheses, Saturday Night, because I think it nicely illustrates the finely honed pop hooks and musical-slash-production growth shown by Def Leppard on this album. Here's what you should listen for. A great ACDC-esque opening riff, a band that, while still not virtuoso players, by this time had become very, very tight. You'll hear a catchy verse, catchy bridge, and catchy chorus. Sheesh. These guys can write a memorable freaking song. I literally can't remember a single note of this tune. You're musically illiterate. And that should not affect the way the rest of us approach this. <laughs> I have a doctorate in music. <laughs> I, f- 
fear for the future. Um, that's, also, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Also, and, and be sure to note the uber Def Leppard background gang vocals. That particular sound is a true Def Leppard trademark, and it's something they'll expand upon in the future. Okay, pause the show and drink in some delectable Def Leppard as found in the link via the show notes, and we'll see you momentarily. <laughs> John, I, it seems to me that you do not adore the finely honed pop sensibilities of Def Leppard in the way that I do. No. What, what, do you, what do you think about Def Leppard? I wouldn't elect to listen to this. Huh, okay. I mean... Uh, it's I, not, look, it's not bad. It's not like this is music that makes me angry like some of the music you've played me. It's just like this doesn't do anything it's for not, me. It's not your thing, even though you would, you would agree that this is a somewhat ACDC-esque approach to pop metal. Yeah, but it doesn't sound as good as ACDC, so if I wanted that, I'd just go listen to ACDC. Interesting. I mean, I think that's a fair point, although I really, really love High and Dry. I Actually, despite the fact that Def Leppard keep coming up on the podcast because they were so important in the early 80s, it's not like my, one of my favorite bands, but this is actually one of my favorite albums. I really do adore it. I have a fun fact. I have a, a genuinely fun fact. This is the very first song that we've discussed on this podcast, which was to eventually make the legendary Filthy 15 list from 1985. Do you have an idea what that is? That have something to do with the establishment of the rating system that they had to put mm-hmm. on records. All right, and all you're that good. Kind of so you know a little bit of the background. Yeah. So this was a list of, quote, naughty songs criticized by the Parents Music Resource Center, yeah, a- aka the PMRC, yeah, yeah, yeah. for corrupting the fragile American youth of the 1980s. So you're somewhat familiar with this, this narrative? Yeah. These were basically the villains of my youth. I mean, the PMRC were a truly loathed organization amongst us young metalheads. Basically, what it really was was a bunch of well-connected Washington wives who had nothing better to do except exploit those connections, led by the notorious and most hated enemy of all metalheads around the globe, Tipper Gore. You might recall her as the wife of our former vice president, though this was all quite a bit before that. He was just a senator at the time. It's an absolutely fascinating story, but actually I think that we will eventually come back and do an episode sort of all about the 80s kind of establishment response to heavy metal. So we're going to put a pin in it for now. If you just can't wait, the podcast Stuff You Should Know did a very good episode on the establishment of this. There's actually a really good You're Wrong About on that as well. So it's pretty well-trod ground as it turns out. But it is a fascinating story. It really is. Well, let's see if we are as offended as these Washington wives were by the lyrics to this specific song. This was placed on the list because it described alcohol use and intoxication, which I think we'll both agree is quite scandalous. I'm literally drinking right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm also freebasing at the same time, which is, uh, you know, a lot. All right, so, John, let's see how offended we are. Might you give us a recitation of the first verse, the bridge, and the chorus? Saturday, I feel right. I've been drinking all day. Oof. Yes, I got a date, a midnight ride. I had to get it away. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a loner. I'm not a fool. Don't need a reason, reason to be cool. I got my whiskey. I got my wine. I got my woman. And this time the lights are going out. Hi. Saturday night. High and dry. I'm high. High and dry. <laughs> so John and I both agree that the chorus doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make a lick of sense. How could you get offended at something that's literally incoherent? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not. I'm not personally scandalized by the lyrics, but they they do mention you know whiskey that we don't. Well, the whiskey is terrible, right? And and lights going out. I mean, I assume they're just going to bed. They're very afraid of the dark. Yeah. Oof. So, so I think we can both agree that the PMRC were stupid and wasting yes. everybody's time and yes. money and energy. Good. So this is basically, it's a drinking song. And one could find similar debauchery in the lyrics of those wild and crazy ancient Greeks. I don't know how much ancient Greek music you know. Do you know much? No. <laughs> you, you really don't listen to any music, do you? No. The oldest extant complete, complete piece of music is often known as the Sakalos epitaph. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it's, it was carved onto a gravestone, hence the epitaph thing. It's a drinking song as well. So, I mean, 
I think that we're all going to survive the exposure to this level of heavy metal toxicity afforded uh, by Def Leppard. What do you think? Wait a minute. Based on the foundational evidence that the Greeks also did this, isn't their culture extinct? I, I, oh, so you actually make an interesting point. <laughs> look, look, I want to agree with you in that I think culturally speaking, the Greeks were probably way cooler than us, mm-hmm. but they did like sort of, you know, lose all the wars and then disappear. Yeah, because they were drunk. Having orgies. Worst ways to be. Yeah. All right. Well, you, you, you've given me food for thought. I, maybe, I, maybe I inappropriately disregarded the PMRC when I should have really been examining these things more carefully. Uh, all right, well, so we. <laughs> I'm really, you I'm really, made me defend them. Yeah, I know. You, you did a good job, actually, which is surprising. <laughs> <laughs> uh, since we discussed Def Leppard in some amount of detail on our last episode, and the lineup remained unchanged on High and Dry, we're not going to talk too much more. But the, it's worth noting that the principal addition on this album was the inclusion of super producer Robert John Mutt Lang. Do you have an idea who Mutt Lang is? That name's familiar. He was formerly married to Shania Twain. Okay. He produced, uh, amongst other ACDC albums, Highway to Hell and Back in Black. All right. Those are good. Yeah. So for ACDC, I think that Mutt Lang kind of neutered them to some degree. I mean, he made them very successful, but he made them a little bit less interesting to me. I like Back in Black and Highway to Hell less than I like their more classic 70s albums. I think he's going to do the same thing, but even more so to Def Leppard, unfortunately. But on this one album, this first time them working together, I do think he managed to get the best out of the band. A few specs on High and Dry, and then we'll move on. So, John, because I'm told that variety is the spice of life, how about this time you provide people with the basic info on this album? I could have you read, but what do you know about the album? I don't know anything about the album. I assume that the album uh-huh. was made by Def Leppard. Okay, good. It is called High and Dry, okay. and you've said the year 1981 about 800 times so far in this episode, so I'm going to guess it came out in the year 1981. That's not bad. Okay, good. All right, let's, let's, see, let's see how you did. High and Dry was released on July 6th, 1981. Check for me. It made it to number 26 on the UK charts and to number 38 on the Billboard Top 200 in the US. Wait, so pause for a second. Just, it's it's worth noting, right? Def Leppard are like super, super megastar band. Like, they have huge success. That's not unimpressive at all, but that's not, like, at this point... They're still a relatively underground version of their soon-to-be superstar selves. I think that's important to know. Please continue. The two singles from this album were the opening track, Let It Go, and the power ballad, Bringing On The Heartbreak. That was great work, John. Thank you. Are you familiar with Bringing On The Heartbreak? I just checked to see if it was one of the songs (laughs) I had to listen to, and it in fact was, which means I have heard it before. It was the power ballad. It was the only power ballad I gave you. In fact, it's probably... I think this might be the first 80s power ballad that's come up in the show. That's entirely possible. Did you like it? No. (laughs) All right. All right. This song is actually particularly important because it was one of the earliest rock videos that made it into heavy rotation on a very young network called MTV, which launched on August 1st of 1981, so just a tiny bit after the release of this album. MTV was to play a huge role in the ascension of pop metal, and this marks the very beginning of that relationship. Now, I should note that the original video to Bring It On The Heartbreak is actually just a really straightforward live performance video, and I don't actually think I'd ever seen it until I was doing the research for this episode. The rather more famous narrative video for this song that most people are going to be more familiar with, that was actually released considerably later in 1984 as part of an effort to then capitalize on the massive popularity of Def Leppard following the success of their Pyromania album. So had they made the video at they, that point in like in 1981 or did No, they so they had they had a video, a different video that was released in 1981 okay. and then they went back and made like a flashy sure people crying and beautiful women and all that stuff pseudo narrative video that doesn't actually tell any sort of story. Perfect. And, yeah, so the best. Anyhow, High and Dry wasn't quite as huge as subsequent albums, but it did eventually manage to go double platinum in the U.S., and it does mark the starting point of the gradual ascension of Def Leppard and other creme de la creme of pop metal to super-duper stardom. 
So, John, any thoughts or questions about pop metal before we move on? Just think, if none of this had happened, we never would have had to suffer through Rock of Ages. You know, Rock of Ages does have some journey on it. I mean, it's got some hard rock on it, too. I think they could have made an equally crappy Rock of Ages without pop metal, I think, Let us never underestimate the capability <laughs> of Broadway producers to create terrible shows. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, so now we're going to check on the state of traditional metal. That bastion of old and new guard bands who were holding down the fort in metal as Satan intended, carrying the torch passed down from Black Sabbath to Judas Priest to Iron Maiden, and on and on and on. It's heaven and hell. Again? No, no, it's not heaven and hell. John, you met most of the key early players of traditional metal. Who's your favorite traditional metal band? Mm-hmm. Uh, we gotta go with Judas Priest. All right, good. So still Judas Priest over Iron Maiden and over Black Sabbath. Yeah. But all good bands. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm just checking in. I mean, it seems like you're more of a traditional metal guy. If I have to pick, yeah. Well, in this show you have to. Yeah. <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally probably not. No. Yeah. We're going to be focusing on what was happening in this middle path in 1981 today, but I do have a fun fact about traditional metal in the 21st century. Now? Yes, now. Can you believe it? Still doing this? They're still doing it. In fact... There's actually a 21st century Nawafum, a new wave of traditional heavy metal. Contemporary bands like Enforcer and Skullfist, uh, favorites of yours. Dumb name. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun name. They're doing it like they did back in the old school and doing it rather well. Everything old is indeed new again. John, are you interested in exploring the soothing sounds of the Nawafum bands? No, but I assume I'll have no choice. Uh, maybe someday. Maybe someday. Skullfist is great. I, re I really like that band, actually. Meanwhile, back in 1981, I think that pretty much everyone still thought they were just playing heavy metal or they weren't. Retrospectively, however, I truly do believe we can clearly see the fissures that were forming both within and without the Nawabum. So here are some examples of some particularly significant traditional metal releases from 1981 that illustrate that idiom reasonably clearly. For my money, the best traditional metal album of 1981 was Mob Rules, which was the final Dio-era Black Sabbath studio album of the 80s. Mob Rules actually improves upon the glories of Heaven and Hell in pretty much every way, and songs like Sign of the Southern Cross and the title track are just absolutely untouchable. Such a great album, although actually it is not my favorite Dio-era album. For that, alas, I think you're going to need to wait for season number four. Season four? Yeah. I'm just halfway through season four. I know! I assume you're schmitzing with anticipation, right? We got, we got years, years of this ahead of us. Yeah, your face just fell. <laughs> like, you, you just aged like 10 years. <laughs> Anyhow, other traditional metal albums from 1981 include Judas Priest's rather milquetoast point of entry and Ozzy Osbourne's solid but inferior to the debut because it was famously rushed, Diary of a Madman, as well as some great Nawabum albums like Girl School's Hit and Run and Saxon's Denim and Leather. Girl School is a fantastic all-female Nawabam band, and we're going to talk about them in some more detail in a future episode, but I highly recommend Hit and Run and Girl School more generally. Uh, to me, they sound a bit like the Go-Go's on steroids. Another significant Nawabam band with a traditional metal release of note in 81 was Samson, whose shock tactics wasn't particularly great, but featured a rather significant vocalist. John, do you remember who that was? Uh... Bruce Bruce! <laughs> Bruce Bruce! <laughs> yes! <laughs> He's back! <laughs> Good name. Yeah, you missed Bruce Bruce, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, A.K.A. Bruce Dickinson. He'll be taking center stage in a future Iron Maiden episode as the successor to Paul Diano, but for now, he remains forever Bruce Bruce in our hearts. Speaking of Iron Maiden, they were the traditional metal band that was most significantly pointing the way to the future of that subgenre in 1981 via their second album, Killers, which further solidified their place as leaders of the New Guard. Killers is actually something of a transitional album for the band. There's a couple of exceptions, but generally it served as a clearinghouse for most of the remaining songs that the band had been kicking around since the 70s, but which had not made it onto the debut. Probably the two most important things about Killers are that, one, it was the first to feature classic lineup guitarist Adrian Smith, and two, it was the first of their albums that was produced by Martin Birch, who would then go on to produce all of Maiden's forthcoming 80s masterpieces. 
Oh, and a third thing. It was the last album to feature Paul Dion on vocals, who was out of the band as of September of 1981. Depending on who you talk to, he was either fired because of drug abuse impacting his performances, fired because Steve Harris wanted a better singer to match his ambitions for the band, or he left the band because they were getting too heavy metal for his tastes and he was no longer interested. Regardless, Killers was Diano's swan song with the band. You sad about that? No. No, I think you'll, you'll be much happier with a Bruce Bruce-led Iron Maiden. I'm always happier with Bruce <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> Everything's better with Bruce Bruce. It is a great album, but I do think that the band was kind of artistically treading water on this release. It's, everything's totally solid, but I particularly adore the opening of each side which is the material that I gave you, John, to listen to on your playlist. What did you think of the opening instrumental, The Ides of March, into Wrathchild? And what did you think of the title track, Killers, which opens side two? Great bass lines. We we talked about this. You really liked the bass lines of Wrathchild and Killers. Yes. That's the only thing you really liked. Yes. (laughs) You didn't find The Ides of March to be kind of exciting and get you pumped and stuff? No, not really. Huh. I have a fun fact then, although maybe it's a sad fact now. I actually considered using the Ides of March as the theme music to Heavy Metal 101. Aww. Yeah. That would have cost money. I know. I didn't do it. Yeah. 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 Anyhow, I don't want to spend too much time with Maiden since we devoted an entire episode to their debut, but I do want to show you what I consider to be one of the all-time great Heavy Metal album covers. So this here is... is a podcast? This is the audio medium. You're going to describe it. Uh-huh. You are going to transcend the medium. <laughs> are you ready for that? Oh, Christ. I know you got to work for a living. This here <laughs> is artist Derek Riggs' cover for Killers. John, could you take a look and describe it to our audience? All right. We are on a street. So from the top down, we got Iron Maiden in red. Mm-hmm. There's a glowing light, so it's clearly nighttime on the street. Killers is in a fun, like, uh, sort of hand-scrawled blood type of... It's kind of like it was cut into Sure, I could see that, yeah. And then, uh, you know, featured prominently in the front, we have that character whose name I've forgotten from the episode when we specifically talked about him. Eddie. Eddie, Mm -hmm. that character is back. Uh, He's got a hatchet. It's Mm. dripping blood. There's some sort of hands grabbing at his shirt. And uh, he looks fairly menacing. Yeah, he's got, like, a sort of evil grin on his face and also, like, long... Spooky gray hair. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spooky album cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a great album cover. It's not my favorite Maiden album, but it might be my favorite Maiden album cover. All right. Yeah. It's good. It's good. To me, that's some heavy effing metal. It's the kind of image that terrifies parents, which is what God intended. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. It's nearly time to move on to the last tong of our three-pronged pitchfork of heavy metal sub-genre goodness, which is what I'm going to awkwardly call the speed slash thrash metal category. But before we get into the detail about this last subgenre, I have a question. Based on the listening that you've done, were you able to orally parse the difference between what I'm calling pop metal and traditional metal? I mean, I don't know how best to describe it, but I mean, the pop metal sounds like that. I mean, it, it sounds poppier. Yeah, yeah, much more pop. I don't know what it is about the music that makes it poppy, mm-hmm. but it is definitely very mm-hmm. like if you listen to that the Def Leppard songs versus the Iron Maiden songs, they're very distinctly two different. Yeah. Okay. Things. Good. I, I agree, and I think some of that has to do with streamlining the material a little bit, simplifying things down, making sure every every layer of texture is as straightforward and clear as possible. A lot of space in the music compared to what you hear in Iron Maiden with those busy bass lines and and all that stuff. But it is important to remember that in 1981, any distinctions were really just beginning to emerge, and there's still there's a lot of crossover between any subgenres which are just getting started. Fundamentally, what we're dealing with is gradations of heaviness. I think that probably an even clearer distinction than the music between a band like Def Leppard and a band like Iron Maiden can be found in the lyrical themes. Pop metal's version of the antisocial lyrics we associate with heavy metal tend to focus on themes of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Pop metal generally is meant to be a good time, light-hearted sort of a music. Traditional metal, by contrast, tends to be steeped in the darker, horror movie-esque themes we discussed back when we first met bands like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. We could, for instance, compare the opening lines from High and Dry's title track from earlier, which begins Saturday, I feel right, I've been drinking all day, yes, I got a date, a midnight ride, I had to get it away with the opening lines from the title track on Killers. 
You walk through the subway. His eyes burn a hole in your back. A footstep behind you. He lunges, prepared for attack. You see a difference, no? Yes. Yeah, yeah. These are generalities, and there are certainly exceptions, but I do think that lyrical content is a helpful way to distinguish between pop metal and traditional metal bands. John, I'm guessing that you had no difficulty at all hearing the sonic distinctions between Venom and the other two bands we discussed. Yeah. You, you like the d- distinctions? Uh, no. Ah! I believe my only comment to you about this upcoming band was, why does it sound like it was recorded on a tin can? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) We now get to explore the monstrous glory that is Venom and the emergence of a new, faster, heavier, and more frightening branch on the heavy metal family tree. So first off, let's try to be as clear as possible about our weird terms. This final major branch of 80s metal generally marks the start of what we might nowadays broadly refer to as extreme metal. But that term wasn't in use back in days of yore. The two principal terms for this first swath of more extreme metal were speed metal and just a bit later thrash metal. Truthfully, there's no clear universally agreed upon distinction between those two terms, other than the fact that we generally refer to the more extreme metal prior to the rise of Metallica and the first wave of American thrash bands as speed metal, and afterwards we tend to refer to the majority of those bands as thrash. The term power metal was actually also used back in the day, but I think that confuses the issue still further, as that label has been long since co-opted for yet another entirely different heavy metal subgenre. Anyhow, No one was yet using the term thrash for anything prior to the year 1984, so for the remainder of this episode, we're going to refer to speed metal and understand this as simply a faster, heavier, and more extreme iteration of traditional metal. John, does that sound reasonably reasonable? Yes. Okay, lovely. Speed metal developed much like heavy metal more generally in that it was earlier telegraphed by certain particularly fast, heavy songs by bands we would never otherwise categorize as that genre. A perfect example of this in heavy metal is the Beatles song Helter Skelter from 1968's The White Album. Helter Skelter has all the trappings of a heavy metal song, but the genre was far from crystallized at that point, and no one is going to label the Beatles as the first heavy metal band. By the same token, the roots of speed metal can be found in the exceptional velocity and precision which Mark II Deep Purple brought to a slew of album opening tracks, Speed King from In Rock, the title track from Fireball, and Highway Star from Machine Head, for instance, though they were certainly not a speed metal band overall. The true father figures of this subgenre were our good pals, Motorhead! Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told you, not a single episode without a Motorhead reference. <laughs> Motorhead more or less lived in this land of a bombastic speed and rough-and-tumble punk-informed grit from the time of their self-titled 1977 debut, until Lemmy's passing in 2015. Would you agree that the Motorhead are pretty fast and gritty and punk-influenced? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good, good. However, none of what came before quite prepared the world for the musical nuclear detonation that was Venom's 1981 debut, Welcome Welcome to Hell. John, you're so excited. No. You're so excited! Oh, no. But wait! (laughs) There's a few other things going on in speed metal territory in 1981 that are worthy of a brief mention before we bury ourselves alive in Venom's transcendent brutality. (laughs) Now, the closest thing to true, pure speed metal that I can think of was Except's fantastic third album, Breaker. While Except's definitive statement on the subgenre, the tune Fast as a Shark, was still one year away at this point. Oh, so good. So good. That's why this band's name is Except. Except. They were German. What are you going to (laughs) do? Fast as a Shark is is often pointed to as the definitive speed metal song. That comes out in 1982, but Breaker is still an incredible album, and one of the finest metal albums of that year. It is fast, and it is furious. I love Except. They're a really, really good band. There were a few other bands from the rougher end of the Nawabum spectrum that are worth noting. The band Blitzkrieg didn't release a full-length album until 1985, but their 1981 single, Buried Alive slash Blitzkrieg, is quite fast and quite heavy, and the B-side, the song called Blitzkrieg, was the other Nawabum song covered by Metallica on their 1984 Creeping Death single. 
I'll remind everyone that they also covered Diamond Heads, Am I Evil, on that single, which we discussed on our last episode. I'm maybe confused now for the wrong reasons, but how are there at least three songs on a single? I know, right? There, there, there were. You know, you fit what you can on the album. But yeah, there were three songs. It's like a B-side and a C-side. I think it's two B-sides. Interesting. Yeah. You okay with that? No, but we're going to move on. <laughs> it's a reasonable question. Another big influence on Metallica was the Scottish Nawabam band Holocaust. Yikes. <laughs> Their album, The Nightcomers, is definitely Yikes. on the punkier edge of the Nawabam. It's actually a very cool album. I, I like mm. it. <laughs> the other Nawabam band that probably honed closest to Venom's ferocity level was the delightfully unhinged Raven whose album Rock Until You Drop isn't as intense as Welcome to Hell, it's a fun title, but is still quite edgy for the time. One last honorable mention band that to my mind does not get nearly enough attention. From Italy, the ghoulish Death SS, who have no relation to my much-beloved American death metal band, Death, released a significant demo in 1981, The Horned God of the Witches. I'm not sure how many people actually heard this music at the time, probably not many, but I think Death SS actually telegraphed the forthcoming sound of black metal even more clearly than Venom. This is very heavy, very strange music, and I strongly advise checking out a song like Murder Angels if one is interested in such things. You interested in that? Oh yeah, I love Murder Angels. <laughs> you wanna, we could pause and listen to Murder Angels. Let's here. not. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now it is time to descend into the darkest depths of the netherworld. We must wallow in the toxic mire and burn in the white hot flames. John, you've got some effing assigned listening to do. I'm totally about to make you listen to Venom's Witching Hour one more time. Are you ready? Everybody join us. Join John in solidarity. Pause the podcast, light every black candle in your house, click on the Venom link in the show notes, and turn your sound systems up to 11. It's time for the Witching Hour! Venom! John, how fucking amazing is that band? Buh. You, You were listening. I saw you. You were like, you were in it. Yeah, there was a point where I decided to uh, count the bass notes, and there was a roughly, uh, I don't know, at least 40-second stretch where he played the same pitch. Yes! Ross, Kronos. That's exhaustingly dull. Exhaustingly awesome. That's so just trash. <sighs> well, look, I <laughs> didn't think you would like them very much, but I honestly think it might be fair to call Venom the most influential band that we have talked about since Black Sabbath and Kiss. Welcome to Hell is oft identified as the quintessential founding musical moment of speed metal, thrash, death metal, and black metal. All the foundational elements are there to be taken and run with by generations of extreme metal bands that would follow in their oily wake. The tremendous speed, volume, and fury of this music, the guttural, harsh vocals, the satanic and otherwise insanely dark lyrical content, the grimy, ultra-lo-fi production, so many things come out of this damn album. Now, would you agree that musically, this is substantially heavier and nastier than anything, chronologically speaking, we're not talking about death here, that we have heard to date? Sure. Yeah, okay. So nasty. Venom were extraordinary outliers in heavy metal in 1981. Death SS, as I mentioned, were about the only metal band I know of around at that time that came close. And I really think one would need to examine what was going on in punk at the time to find other bands with this level of unhinged ferocity. I want to move along and spend a bit of time on the formation of Venom and a few of the specs for Welcome to Hell, but I can't pass up the opportunity to have you recite a bit of the wonderful lyric to Witching Hour. So let's do that first. This will clearly require some sort of a spooky underscore. TBD. A bit of the lyric? That's like the whole fucking lyric. It's not! It's just a little taste. Remember, it goes fast. Well, I go at my own goddamn speed. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes, you do. John's more doom metal than speed metal. Come here, the moon is calling, the witching hour draws near. Come here, the bell is tolling, mortals run in fear. Prepare the altar now and hear the virgin cry. Hold fast the sacrifice, for now it's the time to die. All hell breaks loose, hell's breaking loose. 
Unveil the pentagram and feel the demon's lust. Come watch the holy men who look on in disgust. Come taste blood and feel the heat of Satan's breath. Look in the skies and see the warriors of death. All hell breaks loose, hell's breaking loose, witching hour. I love this so fucking much. How can you not love this? Uh, well, first of all, the lyrics are completely unintelligible if you don't actually read them. Oh, you mean like you can't understand them? I, I mean, to say I can't understand them is a little bit unfair. I would say I catch maybe like four out of every five words, but when there's like seven words in the song missing, one out of five is problematic. <laughs> Uh, also, it sounds like trash. What? The, oh, sa- the, sound, the sound is bad. Yeah, yeah, are we going to get yeah. to that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, when are we going to talk get... about why it sounds like shit? We're going to get to it. Although it sounds like like somebody took the tape and they buried it underground in like a graveyard and then they dug it up. That's what it, that's what it sounds like. But yes, yes, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I promise. Well, So you might not love them, but we must appreciate Venom's monumental influence. I gotta do shit. So we're gonna learn some Venom history. Some Venom history, if you will. I won't. You're not going to? No. Oh, no. All right. Well, the rest of you might. (laughs) So Venom formed in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England in 1979. Doesn't that sound nice and proper? That sounds delightful. Yeah. There's a somewhat complicated origin story involving the merging of various bands into a five-piece early iteration of Venom, but the classic trio lineup featured on Welcome to Hell consisted of Conrad Kronos Lant, bass and vocals, Jeffrey Mantis Dunn, guitars, and Tony Abaddon Bray, drums. Now, I can't help but point out, as one sign of Venom's profound influence, the fact that the earliest incarnation of the almighty death was named Mantis, the nom de plume of Venom's guitar player. Very influential, this band. I read a nice quote about the foundational intent of Venom being to make a band, quote, more satanic than Black Sabbath, louder than Motorhead, with a pyrotechnic show to rival Kiss, and with even more leather and studs than Judas Priest. In a nutshell, musically and visually, Venom very intentionally took everything to the next level, and in so doing, they became, logically, the founding fathers of extreme metal. The very name, Black Metal, for instance, was coined after the title of Venom's 1982 sophomore album. Not too shabby, eh? If you're into that sort of thing. I sure am. (laughs) Look, I know you can't handle too much of this, but we're going to talk just a teeny bit about the debut album, Welcome to Hell, before we let the nice people crawl back into whatever degraded crypts from whence they came. Welcome to Hell was released in December of 1981. Possibly, you'll finally get the information you so crave, the most important fact about this album was that the band recorded it fast and rough over the course of just three days, believing that they were simply recording a collection of demos for their label. This is what explains that incredibly raw sound on the album. Actually, that was probably what would go on to be the attribute that most influenced the later Norwegian black metal bands. John, you do not appear to be a fan of lo-fi production. No. Why did they release it like this? Well, it was their label's decision originally, but in retrospect, I think a lot... I mean, I'll just speak for myself, because I I think a lot of metal fans feel differently about a lot of different things. I have always been a bit of a sucker for a lo-fi sound. I like the rawness. It feels scarier. It feels more dangerous. Like something that's all elegant and pristine and just the the sound is at the, the most exceptional quality level possible, that can be great, but it's certainly, it doesn't make things very scary. It's kind of like with horror movies, you know, to me, Found footage horror movies tend to be scarier than traditional Hollywood. I'm not saying they're better, but they do tend to be scarier. They're just more visceral because of that rawness. It makes everything feel a little bit more authentic. And I think this is the musical equivalent of that. That's my opinion. And again, that's what particularly the sort of second wave Norwegian black metal bands, they really picked up on that element of Venom. So that's my defense of lo-fi production, even though in this case it's sort of a happy accident. Are you convinced? No. Good, good. So same old, same old, basically. Yeah, okay. Sounds like the record company was like, oh, fuck this. We got to get this out of here as fast as possible. (laughs) Well, they were rewarded with one of the most influential albums of all time. 
Since we're speaking of Norwegian black metal bands, the most notorious among them, Mayhem. You know Mayhem? No. That was the band where the guitar player, Euronymous, was murdered by the bass player. Wow, you don't know anything about anything. There's a movie about it that just got like a big Hollywood release just recently. Oh my god. I don't, I don't even think, I genuinely don't, I've never heard this story. You've never I heard the story? I don't think I've seen trailers for this movie. Oh my god. Well, we'll we're, we're going to do an episode on that whole, that whole thing eventually. So, see, season seven. <laughs> no, I think that'll be a season four thing. You put a lot of faith in season four. <laughs> season four is going to... If you don't like the show now, just stick with us until season four. This is going to get real good. Two more years, folks. You can do it. <laughs> just, just hang tight. Hang tight. Anyway, the most notorious of black metal bands, Mayhem, actually got their name from the short, darkly ambient instrumental track on Welcome to Hell, which was titled Mayhem with Mercy. Venom is indeed everywhere. Black metal and death metal. Just they're, they're all over the place. John, on your 1981 Mega Mix, I included three Venom tracks. The title track, Live Like an Angel, Die Like a Devil, which is a great name, and, of course, Witching Hour. None of these delectably torturous musical delights remotely floated your boat? No. Well, I, ooh, I also texted you that fan-made video for In League with Satan. Oh, I didn't realize that was a fan-made video. Yeah, the video. Well, it's fan-made. It's like clips from another video called Nightmare. That is another Venom video. Okay. But did you listen to In League with Satan? Evil. Uh, In League with Satan. I like 30 seconds of Oh, video. you didn't hear the chorus. It's so good. I had no idea why I didn't put that on your mix, but it's a fun song. I think I didn't want to give you too much venom. But that is a fun song. I don't, I don't know that it would have made a difference, Eric. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no winning this one? Nope. All right. Well, I, I am sure that we're going to find some really heavy music you like one of these days. It was going to happen. I mean, look, I look forward to that day. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it gives me a new mountain to climb. Climb um, every mountain. <laughs> you I intend to. <laughs> so I, obviously, I think this album is incredible, and it, it marks just a monumental moment in heavy metal history. Venom, to me, are very much a satanic motorhead on crystal meth, but I cannot find anything not to like about that. Did you notice the motorhead? Like, that they were kind of like an amped up motorhead? I sure. Mean, yeah, that's yeah. I, it's very much where I would situate them. That's, I can't argue with that. Yeah. Okay. So we've successfully glanced in upon the emergence of our three primary 80s metal subgenres, and we've discussed a few of the most important bands and artists from 1981. I feel like it's been a full day. Have you got anything else you'd like to ask or share before I ritually drain your blood for the glory of Baphomet? <laughs> what? <laughs> Did we not talk about that earlier? <laughs> no. I, I missed that memo. <laughs> I'll talk to HR about that. Great. I'm sure it'll be super helpful. <laughs> they always are. Well, all right. So could you at least remind these lost souls how to find us out there in cyberspace? If you'd like to get in touch with us again, we can be reached via email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com and via voice message at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast. You can also find us on social media. Check out Eric's new reel on Facebook at heavymetal101podcast, Twitter at heavy underscore 101, or on Instagram at heavymetal101podcast. I literally spent like 36 consecutive hours trying to figure out how to make a goddamn real that's so sad <laughs> everybody everybody's talking about it it's huge it's huge anyway we'd love to hear from you additionally please don't forget to rate us on itunes review us far and wide and share episodes with your closest friends or perhaps your fiercest enemies depending on how it is you feel about what we do here john it would be great if you could close us out with a blood-curdling agonized shriek as though the tortures of hell were beginning to rain down upon you let's hear it <laughs> Great.